This is Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy. The word public slips smoothly and unobtrusively through contemporary talk. Public opinion, public discussion, the Canadian public, and many related terms all seem to have an obvious and unremarkable meaning except when you pause and ask what they actually point to. Where does this public discussion take place? Why does everyone in Canada constitute a sovereign entity? The public is what philosopher Charles Taylor calls a social imaginary. It's there because we all imagine that it's there. How it got there is the question behind a research project called Making Publics. Headquartered at McGill University, it's an interdisciplinary, North America-wide association of scholars who have been tracking the emergence of a new idea of the public in early modern Europe. Their hypothesis is that before there was any idea of a general public or a society-wide public sphere, there were individual publics brought together by shared interests and made possible by new media. Ideas producer David Cayley has been following the work of making publics, and today he'll tell the story of several of these new publics, beginning with the spread of a taste for portraiture in 16th century England. In provincial England, we have people who are craftsmen. Uh, it's not an art for those folks, it's a craft. They're trained in the guild. They may paint a ship's prow or a pub sign on Tuesday and Thursday and knock off a portrait Friday and finish it, you know, the following Tuesday and then go back and paint someone's staircase. And you can tell the difference when you look at the portrait. From there, we'll move on to religious publics in the 17th century. A company has an endowment. They bring a theology student from Oxford down on a Wednesday night to give a, a lecture, a sermon, at a church in London, a hundred people hear it. Now they want more people to have access to it. They're going to take that sermon and they're going to make it public. And now everybody who reads that sermon is potentially going to be brought in. And finally, we'll turn to the emergence of a literary and writing public in the 18th century. The diary, the letter, the literary forms that we still associate with reflection, with analysis, become increasingly prominent. It's as if somebody suddenly switches on a light. Our series is called The Origins of the Modern Public. It's presented by David Cayley. In the early 16th century, the German painter Hans Holbein moved to England, where a letter of introduction from his illustrious friend Erasmus made him welcome in the circle of Thomas Moore. He enjoyed success at court and by 1535 had been appointed King's Painter by Henry VIII. The brilliance and clarity of the portraits he painted, of Henry, of Moore, of Erasmus, and many others, still vividly evoke and even define his age. Holbein's subjects came from the world of the nobility and the great merchant houses, but the taste for portraiture that he helped to create soon extended beyond these elite circles. Robert Titler is Professor Emeritus of History at Concordia University and a member of the Making Publics Research Group. He's been studying how a public for portraiture developed in the provincial cities and towns of England during the 16th and 17th centuries. 
I asked him where he thought this new interest had come from, and he ascribed it, first of all, to the spirit of the time. Just around the time of the break of the English church from Roman Catholicism, the reign of Henry VIII, uh, the 1540s, also a time of very rapid population growth, considerable social competition between classes, a clamor for status, a clamor for advancement. Much of the old landed classes of the 15th century have passed on. Uh, their lines have come to an end through failure to produce male heirs. Some of them are killed off in the Wars of the Roses. And society is more open in a way than it has been for a long time. And one of the keys to social advancement is, in a way, self-proclamation, to proclaim your legitimacy as a person of gentility, a person of lineage, uh, a person of worth and value. And there are a number of ways of doing that. Um, one is reflected, for example, in the um, revived and very intense interest in heraldry, the clamoring to become armigerous, to gain a coat of arms and display it on everything you own. But a very parallel side of that is a clamor for portraiture as self-legitimation. The model comes from the crown, the court circle, uh, the senior aristocracy, uh, who picked this up, Henry VII to some extent, uh, Henry VIII who succeeds him in 1509. And, uh, it is abetted considerably by the reception of continental ideas about portraiture, particularly as brought to England by Hans Holbein. This creates an affinity for portraiture, which spreads from the court circle, the crown of the court circle outwards. And what happens, I think, when the social affinity for portraiture emerges in the mid-century years is that those who can afford it and who happen to be in London can patronize the handful, very small number, of well-established, mostly foreign-born, like Holbein, portrait painters. But those elsewhere in the reign cannot do that. They don't have geographic access. They may not have the connections to get a Holbein to paint them. They may not be in London enough. And so they come back and rely on local painters who are not portrait painters uh, in any formal sense of the word. They're painters of all things. We would call them house painters. But uh, when someone walks in the front door of the workshop and says, I know you paint houses most of the time, but could you do a portrait? No one says no. And so we have an enormous proliferation from the 1560s, 1570s, hard to date precisely, of portraiture spreading socially and geographically throughout the realm and being done in London by people well-trained in continental Renaissance notions of perspective and uh, so forth. But in provincial England, we have people who are craftsmen. Uh, it's not an art for those folks, it's a craft. They're trained in the guild. They may paint a ship's prow or a pub sign on Tuesday and Thursday and knock off a portrait Friday uh, and finish it, you know, the following Tuesday and then go back and paint someone's staircase. And you can tell the difference when you look at the portrait. These people, the country squire, the urban professional, a master butcher in Ipswich in Suffolk, who in 69 has a portrait done of himself, they compose the burgeoning public for portraiture. And stylistically, it's an interesting phenomenon culturally because it invokes a blending of imported styles, to use that term, from the continent, which we might call polite styles and somewhat academic in their nature, with the native 
English vernacular craftsmanship that would have survived through the pre-Reformation period. These are guys whose, whose fathers or grandfathers would have painted imagery in the parish church and lots of Virgin Marys and so forth. And after the Reformation, of course, those, those subjects are prescribed and they have to paint something else in order to earn a living. But there is now this demand for secular portraiture and um, we seem to be able to date it to about the mid-16th century. We don't find much of it before that, uh, save in, in uh, the royal circles of the court and, and royalty. So when the master butcher, where was he? Ipswich. In Ipswich. Yes. Wants his portrait painted. Yeah. Does he want to retain the local man to do it? Is he retaining the local man because he can't? He probably has no choice uh, unless he really saves up a lot and goes to London and somehow gets access to, you know, one of the great painters of the day, which is unlikely because who's, you know, who's going to slice up the pork chops on the workshop while he's gone? He's going down the street to a Peter Stainer who's on a ladder painting some inside, and he says, you know, uh, look, uh, could you copy me a portrait of Queen Elizabeth? A particular reference I have is to an Ipswich butcher who commissions a painting of himself and of Queen Elizabeth in 69, six years after her death, interestingly. I would like to display these in my house, I, I assume he said. And he would have done that to commemorate himself, to show his loyalty to the dead queen, to exhibit something of his patriotism, rather a new concept at this time, and to put one up on the rival butcher across the street who has no portraits. <laughs> Human nature not having changed a great deal since you know the early 17th century. I think people like that, and, and I could cite you myriad examples of um, lawyers and master craftsmen and clerics particularly and minor gentry and country squires and so forth who are going to commission portraits, sometimes copies of portraits of monarchs or other famous people, sometimes virtual portraits of biblical figures often portraits of themselves uh, with or without their families. We think of these more as lining the long galleries of country houses and, and belonging to the landed classes, but there's a tremendous and growing affinity for portraiture in uh, provincial towns and cities. And most of the painters weren't lolling about in the countryside, of course. They were, they were um, working in towns where they had their workshops, where they might take on an apprentice, uh, and where when they weren't painting portraits, they were painting a pub sign or a staircase or varnishing a pulpit in the local parish church and so forth. The popular taste for portraiture, Robert Titler says, began with the court and the continental styles in favor there and gradually spread throughout the realm. But in his view, this does not mean that people outside of London simply copied the fashions of the high and mighty. Portraits painted in Gloucester look quite different than portraits painted in Norwich or in Chester. The available paints were different. The local craft traditions were different. Regional vernaculars, Titler thinks, interacted with the styles favored by the elite. The formation of a mainstream cultural tradition, English portraiture, is the result of a constant interface between formal, polite notions of the way one ought to speak, to paint, to dress, to sing, and ancient, well, ancient, traditional folkloric versions of the same thing. My concept of the formation of an English school of portraiture 
is something which emerges in the great mixing bowl of um, local traditions from Norwich and Chester and Exeter and Gloucester. On the one hand, displayed in the work of craftsmen whose families may go back several generations in that occupation. And on the other hand, the reception of, let's say, formal implied ideas from uh, the continent as brought to England through Holbein in his time or through Rubens and Van Dyck a century later and so forth. So that by the 18th century, I think you can say um, there are two forms of, let us say, portraiture. One is an English version of forms which are uh, common to the continent, but there's also a survival, I think, in many cases of these regional traditions. Uh, Oliver Goldsmith uh, writes in, uh, in, uh, in what? remember the work, but he talks about uh, the portrait painter who goes around the countryside doing portraits at 15 shillings a head in the 18th century. And I think these are regional guys. I'm seeing the ancestors of that portrait painter in my period. And I think when we talk about making publics, we need to take this kind of interface, this cultural mixing into account. English portrait painting blended local and imported styles. But in what sense did it create a public? The answer to this question, in Robert Titler's view, reaches past the limited number of people who actually sat for portraits and into the much larger group who were in some way influenced by their knowledge of this new liking. Just to know, for example, that people of only middling status, aldermen, minor gentry, butchers, were memorializing themselves in this way might change one's view of things. And so the public for portraiture takes in all those who established some significant relationship to this practice. I define it as people who shared an affinity. In other words, they might want to have their portrait painted, but for economic or other reasons they can't do it. They might admire portraits in the houses of others, but not particularly want one themselves. Uh, the admiration constitutes part of that affinity. It would include people who start to draw and paint as hobbies, which we do also get in this period, but who may not have a portrait done of themselves. So that a public for portraiture is more than just the consumers. The influence of portraiture, according to Robert Titler, rippled outward through the ranks of those who felt some affinity for this new practice. And the practice itself changed over time. Anne Thackeray is a curator and art historian, a member of the Making Publics Research Group, and Robert Titler's collaborator in the study of 16th and 17th century English portraits. She says that in the first phase of this new fashion, portraits show the marks of what Titler earlier called the clamor for status. Postures are stiff, and there's an emphasis on display of clothing, of possessions, of markers of identity and allegiance. Later portraits show more individuality. You see people, and you see people change. And you see what interests them change. So that whereas someone like, you know, an Elizabethan courtier might have himself painted in extremely expensive clothing with his coat of arms, and maybe his heir standing beside him, okay. The next generation will be showing you what interests them. They'll be showing you books that are particularly interesting to them. They'll be showing you a bit of landscape in the background or more allegory. And then as the century goes on, towards the end of the century, you're getting people who are actually in very relaxed poses, 
who are interacting with one another or even interacting with you or posing in melancholy poses or whatever. So it becomes the kind of emotion and movement and action that people are living in their lives gets into the portraits and the portraits become less about how rich I am and how highly born I am and more about what sort of person I am, what interests me. So when you get to the point where you're having a, a portrait of Sir Isaac Newton, it's this electric personality. There's a wonderful portrait of him by uh, Kneller in the um, National Portrait Gallery in London. And it's a man who's just, a, a, you know, alive, brilliant. This amazing mind is, is, is looking you right in the eye. And he's wearing clothes that could be anybody's clothes. They're anonymous clothes. You know, it doesn't matter how rich he is. It, what matters is the, the mind he has, the spirit he has. Portraits make publics, both as objects through which people can express themselves and as objects around which other people can deploy and develop their own tastes. An artistic taste, as German philosopher Jürgen Habermas has argued, is one of the key avenues by which the public takes shape. So long as publicity, or publicness, was something that belonged entirely to the court and the aristocracy, Habermas says, and art depended on patronage, the function of the arts was to glorify and sanctify the proceedings of church and state. When art became a commodity available for purchase in the theater, through the development of a market for painting, by the later 18th century in the concert hall, the audience became the critical authority, and the arts were set free to follow any bent for which a public could be recruited. But the arts were only one of many pathways by which the public was constructed. Joe Ward is the chairman of the History Department at the University of Mississippi and a member of the Making Public's research team. And he's been investigating the ways in which a sense of religious vocation led Puritan businessmen to construct new publics in 17th century England. These were evangelical Protestants who wanted to improve rural education and left endowments for this purpose with one or other of the big London trade guilds, or livery companies, as they were known. I'm working now, I've been working for a long time, on a study of the management of provincial charities by Londoners in the 16th and 17th centuries, particularly grammar schools. In the pre-modern period, there was the assumption that uh, before you could go off to university, you need to have basics in Latin and in Greek. But of course, very, very few people, only the, only the children of aristocrats and the, and, the, and the rich gentry could afford the tutors or those, the, the, the few schools that existed in the big cities. And as the Reformation took off, some of the folks who were, who were really pushing for reform became convinced that there needed to be a clergy that was better trained, because with Protestantism generally, especially Calvinism, there's an emphasis on the word rather than the ritual. And in order to preach the word, you needed to be able to study it, and you need to be able to study it in a very sophisticated way. And so there became a concern that there needed to be an effort to create a better educated clergy. And one way to do that is to create a larger pool of potential university students. and 
Londoners uh, through these livery companies became interested in this because in the particularly in the 16th century, many and, and perhaps in some cases most Londoners were not originally from London. There was a, a steady influx of migrants from the countryside, folks who'd come from small rural communities often. They'd serve apprenticeships, various trades, and some got rich and some didn't. Well, some of those who, who did make a lot of money became interested in, in this sort of Puritan educational reform. And they left large endowments to create grammar schools for their home communities, many of which, again, were tiny places. I'm not talking about small towns, I'm talking about villages. And because these communities were out in the provinces, in the so-called dark corners of the land, the local communities were governed largely by gentry who, in many cases, were Catholic. And so what would you do? You're, you're a native of, I'll pick an example I work on a lot, Kirkham up in Lancashire. And you want to give opportunities to young men, and we are talking about men here uh, in early modern education, to have a chance to go off to university and, and become godly and all that, all that good stuff. What are you going to do? You can't trust the people back home to run such an institution because they're Catholic. So you leave the endowment in the hands of a London livery company, the Mercers, the Haberdashers, the Drapers, one of the big rich companies that manage a lot of property and are trustworthy. They're rich. They'll take care of your money. And so what happens over time is these companies begin to accumulate some of these schools. I'm tracking about 20 to 25 altogether. And relationships build between Londoners, big bourgeoisie in London, and people in these small communities at the, at the far end of the realm. And, and I'm really interested in the sort of uh, cultural interaction between the metropolis and the provinces that develops as, as a result of this. And so the public making part comes in uh, for me, David, because these were non-governmental organizations, literally NGOs, as we would think of them today, that are involved in, for lack of a better term, internal missionary work from the center to the periphery. And they're making a new society, they hope, through this effort. The wealthy men who sponsored this effort had either come up through the ranks of the London livery companies or were using them to administer the endowments they created. These guilds, which were the subject of Joe Ward's first book, traced their history back into the Middle Ages. The Grocers Guild, for example, had originated as a fraternity of pepperers in 1345 and possessed a charter issued to them by King Henry VI in 1428 as free men of the mystery of grocery. One scholar, whom Joe Ward quotes in his book, suggests that in the 16th century up to three-quarters of the adult men in London may have been members of livery companies. And even in the 17th century, Ward says, they still controlled the government and much of the commerce of London. In order to become a, a citizen of London, in order to have the right to have a household and occupy a trade, you had to be a member of a trade guild. And they were called livery companies because when you became a, a freeman, you joined the company. And then as your status improved, you were given the right to wear the livery of the company, the formal gown of the company. So they're, they're called livery companies. They have charters from the crown. Okay, so they're, they're independent corporations, but they undergirded the civic government of London itself. And so 
each guild had a great deal of uh, regulatory authority over its particular trade. So, uh, for example, the grocer's company had officers, and they'd go to various grocer's shop and make sure that people were were selling goods that were viable, that they weren't cheating their customers, that they weren't fixing their scales to take advantage of the unsuspecting customer and so forth. So the guilds conveyed a sense of respectability upon their members. And over time, that sort of seal of approval was something that became very valuable in an increasingly crowded marketplace. Within the London livery companies, the influence of Puritanism was very strong. The term Puritan, like many catch-all names bestowed on people by their opponents, is not precise. Today, it tends to call up images of grim repression. Those grouped under this banner thought of themselves as the godly, intent on purifying faith and promoting personal sanctity. Their position generally was that the Church of England, which emerged from the religious ferments of the first half of the 16th century, was not a truly reformed church, and some thought not much more than the Church of Rome under new management. Joe Ward uses the word in this broad sense to describe that substantial fraction of English Protestants who felt this way. Puritanism is a movement. It's an attitude. It's a sense that the Church of England had not gone far enough down the path of true reform What do you need? Well, you need folks who are literate because of the emphasis on the word, reading the Bible, reading sermons. So you need people who are literate. You need people who, if they're going to be able to pursue their interests, have some means, that is to say cash, to put their shillings together with the shillings of people with similar belief to pay for preachers, because this is all working outside of the official church structure. So I think that for a variety of reasons, the big bourgeoisie in London tend to be attracted to these ideas. And there's a certain sense of independence, right? We want to run the churches we control the way we want to run them. We don't want Archbishop Laud to tell us what to do. So Puritanism of the small p. Folks are attracted to social order, people who believe that there is an elect who are here to provide some leadership to the rest. And Perhaps they themselves are among that elect. So I think for a variety of reasons, the big uh, livery companies in London tend to foster the conditions that support the development and propagation of some of these Puritan ideas. Puritanism was an evangelical movement. It was interested in propagating the word of God. And through this ambition, Joe Ward says, it seeded new publics. The primary vehicle by which the word was disseminated was the sermon. And in the age of print, Ward says, sermons could create associations that went far beyond the preacher's immediate audience. You do not need to know every other member of your public. So that's why for us the circulation of text seems to be such an integral facet of public making. Anybody who goes and reads this sermon is now potentially a member of this public. So you have to have a set of conditions in place that enable the type of publicity, I mean, quite literally, publicity, making what was essentially a a small event, a company has an endowment, they bring a theology student from Oxford down on a Wednesday night to give a, a lecture, a sermon, 
at a church in London. A hundred people hear it. Now they want more people to have access to it. They're going to take that sermon and they're going to make it public. And now everybody who reads that sermon is potentially going to be brought in. So now you read the sermon and it, it strikes a chord with you. You go back to the book seller. You say, hey, you got any more of this stuff? Now the next time someone comes to the, the bookseller or the printer and says, do you want to print this sermon? They say, oh, yeah, the last one, that last one did really well. Yeah, I want to, I want to print the next one. The public that can be created by a printed sermon is potentially unlimited. More people will be brought in, Joe Ward says, but who they are and where they are and what the sermon actually means to them will probably never be known by those who distribute the sermon. A public is a relationship between strangers, often acting quite independently, who still share something that is powerfully important to them. Joe Ward illustrates this point with the case of two men whom he has encountered in his current research on provincial charities, men living at different times and in different places who were moved to do exactly the same thing. The first, William Jones, was a wealthy merchant who left money with the Haberdashers Company to endow a school, a lectureship, and an almshouse in his native Monmouth. The second, Henry Colburn, a successful scrivener, left money with the Draper's Company, there was no Scrivener's Company, to set up an identical operation in his hometown of Kirkham in Lancashire. Here are these two guys, grew up two generations apart, different ends of England. They come to London, they're in different lines of work. Neither one, as far as we can tell, is a formal member of the company to which they trust huge amounts of money. Both set up operations that are almost identical in their, their structure, a school, an endowed lectureship, an almshouse. The similarities here suggest that there's something going on and, and that something is a public that's forming around this notion that London wealth can serve as a, a counterweight to the official Church of England, which is dragging its feet in the area of lay education and godly preaching. So these are guys who are anonymous to one another. There's no corporation of godly benefactors of provincial charities. It's just a bunch of individuals who seem to be attracted to the same sorts of issues, and they're using similar media, right? If you want to consider an almshouse a, a kind of text, they're setting up similar institutions to address similar problems, different parts of the realm, and they're brought together through their common interest in propagating godliness. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1, on Sirius Satellite Radio 137, and cbc.ca. Our program is called The Origins of the Modern Public, and it's presented by David Cayley. It is said that Madame de Stael, who hosted a celebrated salon in late 18th century France, would sometimes require her guests, after dinner, to withdraw into separate rooms and write letters to one another. 
German philosopher Jürgen Habermas tells the story in his book The Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere, the classic account of the new conception of the public that developed in the 18th century. According to Habermas, this was a common social pastime in the period, though Madame de Stahl, he says, cultivated it to excess. What it seems to reveal is the remarkable extent to which Madame de Stahl and her guests viewed themselves and one another as literary inventions, as written subjects eager to be read. The new public of the 18th century, Habermas says, was, from the outset, a reading public, and it was through letters and diaries, novels and newspapers, that its members trained their faculties of sympathy and critical judgment. Kevin Pask is professor of English at Concordia University and a member of the Making Publics Research Group. And in the final section of today's program, he'll outline his research on the history of the literary public in England. This public, he thinks, achieved a critical mass during the Restoration, the period after 1660 when the English monarchy was restored and Charles II took the throne 11 years after his father had been executed at the climax of the English Civil War. The sign of the literary public's coming of age, Pask says, was the flowering of literary criticism. One of the functions of a literary public is to critique literature. So that one of the things that you find in England is the tremendous efflorescence of literary criticism after the Restoration in 1660. You know, if you look at the sort of standard anthology of Renaissance literature, you find a little, you can find a little bit of literary criticism. You find Philip Sidney's Defense of Poetry. You can find the conversations of Ben Jonson, William Drummond, uh, where Johnson is kind of issuing a number of dicta about the writers of his period. You can find literary criticism, but you just don't find as much. And then suddenly we're awash in literary criticism after about 1660. So you have the opening kind of great classic of English literary criticism. The one that's probably included in every anthology of English literary criticism is Dryden's Essay of Dramatic Poesy, which is published, I think, around 1668. And from that point onward, you have a tremendous amount of literary criticism. You know, you have, in effect, from Dryden to Dr. Johnson, you have the probably the first great age of English literary criticism. So what is that a sign of? I mean, my, I guess my argument is that's the sign of what a literary public does. It reflects on the literature that is, it is at the same time producing. So for me, I guess it would be no accident that English literary criticism really begins in earnest after about 1660, because it's, a, it's what the literary public does. For Kevin Pask, the appearance of a literary public in Restoration London reflected, first of all, the amazing growth of the city itself. The poet, dramatist, and critic John Dryden, whom Pask just mentioned, famously held court in Will's Coffee House in Covent Garden, an area still undeveloped in Queen Elizabeth's time, when a walk westward from the old city to the court at Westminster would still have taken you through open fields. The development of this area in the first half of the 17th century to accommodate London's burgeoning population marked the beginning of what is still called the West End. We know that all sorts of 
uh, people were pouring into London for employment and so forth. But you also had very rich people pouring into London, that is the members of the landed gentry, who were becoming, in fact, wealthy enough that they were beginning to come to London to arrange marriages, to make financial arrangements with bankers or with lawyers, uh, legal arrangements, increasingly spending time in London. And they began to flock to places like Covent Garden to take up either kind of permanent or seasonal residency. So you have actually a kind of increasingly something that I'm not aware of in London before this point is a kind of almost a kind of entertainment zone or a kind of a cultural zone that begins to emerge. Covent Garden, the hub of this new cultural zone, began life as a planned community under royal patronage. But the Stuart Kings were not, in the event, pleased with the scene that developed there. They particularly disliked the rural gentry's fascination with the town, as it was beginning to be called, and both James I and Charles I issued proclamations more or less ordering them back to their estates. Essentially, they considered the function of the gentry of landed wealth was to be back in the countryside, attending to their tenants, managing their estates, and keeping good order, you know, serving as, you know, these are the people who were meant to serve as justices of the peace, you know, out in the counties of England. Uh, so here they were, and this was, this was bothersome both to James and to Charles, uh, you know, is here they were in London, Going to the theater. Going to the theater, spending money. There's the, the language of some of these edicts is includes condemnations of the you know amount of money that their you know their wives were spending in the shops of London. I mean, there's the threat was not so much that they felt threatened by having the gentry close at hand as an immediate threat, but as as a kind of a threat to the good order of the kingdom. The pleasures and attractions of the town proved stronger than the admonitions of James and Charles. And soon, Kevin Pask says, an alternation between town and country had become an established pattern of life. By the 18th century, you have an, you know, a fairly formalized, uh, what was called the, the season. When the gentry would arrive in London in January or before Christmas, and spend the, whole, the entire winter up until usually around June or so when they would return to their estates. But you have a, you know, this would be the season when daughters would be brought out at debutante balls, um, which financial affairs would be put in order, things of this nature. There, was a, there became, by the 18th century, a kind of semi-formalized stay in the city. The development of the season and the general expansion of the city gave London, by the later 17th century, the kind of cultural density that allowed a literary public to take shape. The town was a scene of conversation. The witty and pleasant discourse that the diarist Samuel Pepys remembers enjoying in a coffee house in Covent Garden. It was a scene of philosophical discussion. Joseph Addison, writing in his paper The Spectator in 1711, expresses his ambition to have it said of me that I have brought philosophy out of closets and libraries, schools and colleges, to dwell in clubs and assemblies, at tea tables and in coffee houses. And it was a scene of judgment. I made the town my judges, 
John Dryden wrote in a preface to a play of his which had not enjoyed much success, and the greater part condemned it. This culture of discussion and critical judgment, according to Jürgen Habermas, was the seedbed of a new kind of public. Kevin Pask agrees. You move from a public that is, in Habermas's terms, a public of monarchs, aristocrats, and church authorities that do not reflect a larger public, but put themselves, in effect, on display for a larger public. And what you move towards, ultimately, is our sense of the general public, which didn't even exist in the early modern period. It would have seemed almost laughable to talk about the general public. The public was something that belonged only to the state. The monarch was public. Who else was public? One wasn't a member of the public. Just by virtue of being, you know, born in that state, that didn't give you that kind of sense of yourself in the period. But for me, I think one of the interesting things about the, the literary public is that it actually explicitly conceives of itself as a public and begins to talk about itself as the public by the end of the 17th century and as a public that is no longer seen as belonging to a kind of a courtly or ecclesiastical state world. It is a public that is, let's say, somewhat more out in the open, no longer in Westminster, and not exactly in the city of London either, but in this new space of the, this emerging West End of London, in the English example. The public has moved outside of the court, let's say, in terms of literary history. And at the same time, however, it's still very much an elite public. And one of the things I would emphasize is the difference between mere readers and the literary public. Because I think that the discourse of the literary public that understands itself as a public in the 17th century is still a relatively elite discourse. And there would have been, on the part of, let's say, a great early critic like John Dryden, a kind of rejection, I think, of the idea that a lowly, you know, London apprentice who owns some books or read some books and enjoys popular romances and that sort of thing could really qualify as a member of the literary public. So it's very much a kind of an elite formation. And there's a distinction between the public and just, just readers in that respect. But I think that in some ways it's, in terms of that larger narrative of moving from the court to that idea of the general public, it's kind of an interesting kind of mediating moment where you've moved outside the court, but there's still not that kind of sense of, and I don't think that you find, I don't think you can find this in England in the 17th century of a general public. This is part of the reason why we're talking about publics in our project rather than the public, because you just will not find in England, certainly before, I think, around 1750, at the very earliest, any kind of sense of the general public as, as a public that might include everyone. That just doesn't exist. So we're looking at something that's kind of, we're looking at kind of stepping stones towards that larger formulation. The literary public of the 17th and 18th centuries was an elite, Kevin Pask says, but also a stepping stone to a more inclusive idea of the public. And one of the ways in which this progression manifested 
was in the new genres of writing that became prominent in the later 17th century. The diary, the letter, the literary forms that we still associate with conversation, with reflection, with analysis, become increasingly prominent. It's as if somebody suddenly switches on a light in the mid-17th century, and suddenly these forms that are, if you trace them back into the 16th century and before, are relatively spare forms. I mean, they're not, there are very few letters, very few diarists who are really genuinely interesting to read before the 17th century, I would say. But it's as if suddenly with, especially in the middle years of the 17th century, you get this kind of movement away from the great achievements of the Renaissance in the poetic genres to these more mundane, prosaic genres that suddenly, you know, here we are in 1616, you're beginning to look at the emergence of the novel in England in a very strong way, too. What is the novel relying on? Journalism. It's relying on famously on letters and the novel Pamela, which is, of course, an epistolary novel, an exchange of letters. Uh, you know, suddenly we're looking at the movement from the kind of, let's say, the high poetic genres of the Renaissance to these mundane, prosaic genres that dominate the late 17th and 18th centuries and the power, the new power that they seem to carry with them. The novel being, the, of course, the genre that kind of in some ways incorporates all of them into its own narrative strategy. But you'd look at, let's say, journalism, letter writing, diaries, memoirs, all of these things which are sort of becoming more prominent and more, let's say, in aesthetic and literary terms, more powerful as aesthetic artifacts in the period. Amongst these forms of writing, the letter had a special place. The 18th century, according to Jürgen Habermas, was the century of the letter. Through letter writing, he says, the individual unfolded himself in his subjectivity, and herself, one might add, since many of these letter writers were women. But subjectivity, Habermas goes on to say, was always already oriented to an audience. Private letters were copied, shared, and published. Some correspondences were intended from the outset for publication. And then there was the epistolary novel, the novel in letters, of which the most celebrated example was British writer Samuel Richardson's Pamela, or Virtue Rewarded. If you want to look at the literary power of the letter, the idea of an epistolary novel and this is what Pamela is. It's a novel by Samuel Richardson, first published, I believe, 1740, in which the entire novel is constructed of letters. And almost all of those letters, if not all of them, are written by the character Pamela herself. Now, there had been, going back considerably earlier, there are precursors of narratives that were constructed out of letters in both England and France and going back into the 17th century. But Pamela hits a chord, hits a nerve in Euro European society. So it really does become like one of the great bestsellers of the 18th century. And part of the reason for this is simply that it's not just a novel in letters, but it's a novel that is in some ways a kind of exercise in cultural and social leveling 
in letters in which a servant girl, Pamela, eventually overcomes the unwanted sexual advances of Lord B uh, and eventually marries him. This was part of the, the, the power that it had over European society. It was that it was about a woman of the serving class who expressed herself so well and so powerfully in letters and used the letter as, in effect, a kind of a, an, a means of social advancement. This was the critique, by the way, that Henry Fielding directed against Pamela. The other great novelist of the period was that really was a, in his great parody, Shamala, you know, that she was always kind of fishing around for a way up in the world using her supposed chastity and the, and her letter writing as her means of social advancement, but it was all in effect a big tease all along. And this is the kind of the fielding critique of, of Pamela. But it doesn't negate or didn't interrupt the literary power that, that the novel exercised in the period. I mean, I would say that the success of Pamela is a reflection of the sense of that, that you have in the period that the letter as a means of literary expression and as a means of reflection and exchange is suddenly becoming a much more kind of powerful medium than it had ever appeared to be previously. The success of Richardson's Pamela is one measure of the power and prestige of the letter at this time. It also indicates a democratizing tendency within the literary public. Pamela establishes her equality with her would-be seducer through her literary skill as a letter writer, and the wild popularity of Richardson's parable of character and talent overcoming class seems to say that this was what a lot of members of the literary public wanted to believe was possible. So. Although the literary public was an elite formation, Kevin Pask says, it was still a force for openness and inclusion relative to the much more restricted political sphere of the time. Despite everything I've said so far, which has been kind of emphasizing the relatively elite nature of the literary public, I think one way that one could describe part of what's happening in the literary public is that it is, in relative terms, more open than the more much more restricted political public of the same period that is to say the late 17th you know into the 18th century uh, so that women for example and the, the example of the French salon is important here women were were very early on participating as equals to men in the development of a of a literary public that there was a somewhat more open door to non-elite men as well who had shown talent. Of course, showing talent would usually require a high degree of educational obtainment, so it usually was relatively restricted. But there were, as previously, of course, you had someone like William Shakespeare uh, who showed lots of talent uh, and came from, you know, a relative backwater of Stratford-upon-Avon and from a relatively, certainly non-aristocratic, non-elite uh, family. Those kinds of openings were still in place. So I think that one of the things that happened, as if you can look at the, the literary public as one of the places where a certain kind of public or publicizing discourse was being trained, it was also being opened up more in the literary domain 
than it was in the political domain itself, so that you have, let's say, kind of uneven developments where the, where literature is becoming, even though as it, you know, as I was saying, remains relatively elite, is more open to people who would not have been had any form of representation or inclusion within the political sphere or the political public sphere. Um, so that kind of uneven development also opens up the possibility that there will be a reflection on the disequilibrium between what's happening in literature and what's happening in politics. So someone like Fielding, again, Henry Fielding, from a relatively conservative standpoint, reflects in the by the middle years of the 18th century on the what he calls the downright anarchy, as he terms it, of the literary world. That is to say, a world that was, according to Fielding's judgment, was spinning out of the control of its own elites. Kevin Pask, professor of English at Concordia University and a member of Making Publics. I'll continue my exploration of the origins of the modern public next time with a program on the public sphere in the 18th century. On Ideas, you've listened to The Origins of the Modern Public by David Cayley. His series continues next week. It's also available as a podcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Production was by David Cayley, Dave Field, and Bernie Lucht. To find out about upcoming Ideas programs, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The hourly news is next on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio.